sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the uh, books surrounding you are those used to research our show and the individual here to my right, along with uh, managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be uh, directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello, and thank you to all the listeners out there who sent me nice little notes about the bees episode last time. As most of you know, this is a pet topic for Mrs. Carswell, who herself keeps uh, bees here on the premises. Yes, I was just treating the hives to mites today, as a matter of fact. But it's really nice to hear from people excited about my interest being highlighted. I feel very supported. That's good. I'm going to be writing some thank you notes when I find that stationery. I think it's much nicer than email, though it has been nice to make some new online friends. You mean uh, fans? No, friends. They're interested in me as a person. I've had some very nice exchanges, actually. Are they asking questions about me? No. Uh, You might come up, but you shouldn't worry. Well, that makes me worry. I know you're a very private person. I learned that my first days here. How do I come up, then? Are you complaining about your life here? Certainly not. They have questions about bees. It's mainly about bees. These are all women, by the way. I'm not just writing back to random men. I know how those things go. I delete those without even opening them. How many messages did you get? They do, however, agree with me about your Ukrainian friends. They certainly don't think we need guards outside the house, brandishing machine guns, and understand how that might make one nervous. You are complaining. No, I'm just sharing my thoughts and feelings about my life. What they hear on this show is very limited and misleading, and I just try to correct that. So, it's uh, not about bees. Bees are a part of my life, but just listening to these bits of our conversations you choose to include in the show, you think I was some kind of strange, difficult person. No, they wouldn't. Anyway, I'd like to find that stationery. I miss sending letters and sealing them with beeswax. I, I, I got some. some emails too. Not that that's unusual. People have questions about the show. I don't recall getting any questions about you now that I think of it. I hope my wax stampers are with the stationery. One is a hive, one's a bee, and one's a heart. I wouldn't use the heart with anyone though. Not right away. Oh, that's good. But the Ukrainians are here to stay, and it's time to start the show. I'd like to say hello to a few people first, if if that's all right. Who? My new friends, Jenny, Geraldine, and Andrea, for now. That's all. No last names. Okay. Hello! Episode 65, The Kraken and other marvels of the northern seas. 
I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. As you already know, uh, we'll be exploring the uh, sometimes uh, frightful lore of the Northern Seas in this episode. And uh, that being so rich a topic, and because I know there are a lot of listeners out there who are fans of all things uh, Scandinavian, Vikings, and of course, uh, cryptozoology, I'm making this the first of a two-parter on the topic. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. And I'll have more on Patreon and the new batch of Bone and Sickle shirts coming out at the end of our show. Let no joyful voice be heard. Let no man look up at the sky with hope. And let this day be cast by we who ready to wait. Well spoken. The words are uttered by Davy Jones, the captain of the ghostly Flying Dutchman, in the 2006 entry in Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, Dead Man's Chest. As uh, the Kraken is a monster of the Northern Seas, it's a bit better placed here than within the uh, Greek setting of the Clash of the Titans discussed a couple of shows ago. Uh, Davy Jones' apocalyptic language is also very fitting to the creature. We hear a similar tone in Alfred Lord Tennyson's 1830 poem, The Kraken, uh, which we'll hear in a moment, but there's a couple archaic words uh, which I'll explain. Uh, Grot comes from grotto, meaning cave, and um, polypi is an old word for octopi and uh, possibly squid. Below the thunders of the upper deep, far, far beneath, in the abysmal sea, his ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep, the kraken sleepeth. Faintest sunlights flee about his shadowy sides. Above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height, and far away into the sickly light, from many a wondrous grot and secret cell, unnumbered and enormous polypi. Winnow with giant arms, the slumbering green, there hath he lain for ages and will lie, battening upon huge sea worms in his sleep, until the latter fire shall heat the deep. Then once by man and angels to be seen, in roaring he shall rise and on the surface die. The monstrous creature of the abyss sleeping its dreamless sleep and waiting to arise at some particularly doomy turn of history will remind many listeners, I'm sure, of a creature similarly envisioned about a hundred years later by H.P. Lovecraft in his short story, The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, A number of scholars have pointed to Tennyson's poem as a possible source of inspiration for everyone's favorite old one, though Lovecraft unfortunately left behind no specific letters or notes that 
could uh, ultimately verify this. It's also uh, just as likely that Lovecraft and Tennyson were both independently responding to a natural association or a symbolic link between the end of the world and a creature of the depths stirring, whether a kraken rising from the watery abyss or the devil coming up from hell. Uh, such movement would destroy the known order, the bottom rising, the top, the sky falling, giving us the great end times topsy-turvy. Perhaps in a way that would have surely delighted Lovecraft, both authors are responding to ancient beliefs seeping into the Anglo-Saxon consciousness. That is, tales of another sea beast, Jormungandr, the world serpent of Nordic mythology. The old Eddas describe her as the uh, child of Loki and the giantess Angreboda, sometimes called the mother of monsters. Those uh, monsters being the serpent, of course, the terrible wolf Fenrir, and Hel, ruler of the dead. Distressed over the birth of these horrible things, uh, Odin, shortly after the serpent's birth, hurls it into the watery depths, into the ocean surrounding Midgard, the realm of mortals. And there it grows large enough to encircle our world and becomes known as the Midgard Serpent or the World Serpent. And from that day it's laying in the depths with its tail grasped in its mouth. And should it ever release itself, the world will be destroyed, as in these passages from the 13th century prose Edda's Prophecy of Ragnarok. While the earth trembles and mountains fall, we hear that Then shall Fenris Wolf get loose. Then the sea shall gush forth upon the land, because the Midgard serpent stirs in giant wrath and advances up onto the land. As Fenris swallows the sun and moon, the fire giants will ride out to battle the frost giants, and... The Midgard serpent shall blow venom, so that he shall sprinkle all the air and water, so terrible he is. Likewise, the world tree, or... The ash of Yggdrasil shall tremble, and nothing then shall be without fear in heaven or in earth. All the gods are drawn into the battle, including Odin, who shall go forth against Fenris Wolf, and Thor stands forward on his other side, and can be of no avail to him, because he shall have his hands full to fight against the Midgard Serpent. Thor shall put to death the Midgard Serpent, and shall stride away nine paces from that spot. Then shall he fall dead to the earth, because of the venom which the snake has blown at him. It also doesn't go that well for Fenris, or even Odin, or all of Midgard for that matter, or any of the Nine Worlds, all of which are destroyed. Now that's Ragnarok for you. But uh, let's turn to happier memories, like that time that Thor went fishing with the giant Hymir. Uh, it's another story featuring the serpent Jormungandr, who in this story is apparently not yet grasping his tail in his mouth, but freewheeling it down there below the ocean's surface, uh, baiting his hook with an ox head, Thor throws his line from the boat, and the serpent takes the bait. Uh, according to the prose Edda, Thor then... Drew the serpent up to the edge of the boat, and it may be said that no one has seen very fearful sights 
You might not see that. How Thor flashed fiery glances at the serpent, and the serpent, in turn, stared up toward him from below and blew venom. Then, he said, the giant Hemir grew pale, became yellow, and was sore afraid when he saw the serpent and how the sea rushed out and in through the boat. In the very moment when Thor clutched his hammer and raised it on high, then the giant fumbled for his fish knife and hacked off Thor's line, and the serpent sank down into the sea. Thor hurled his hammer after it, and men say that he struck off its head against the bottom. But I think it were true to tell thee that the Midgard serpent yet lives and lies in the encompassing sea. Well, it seems some sort of monster remained lurking in the seas, or at least the seas of the medieval imagination, as evidenced in the uh, Carta Marina of uh, 1539, which is the first map to represent Europe's northern lands and oceans. The Carta's waters are illustrated with swirling serpents, tusked whales, immense toothy turtles, uh, fearsome fish with manes, and things that look like dinosaurs. The creator of the map, Olaus Magnus, Archbishop of Uppsala, does not identify any of these with names, so it's hard to say if the Kraken is represented, particularly so as during this period the name was uh, rather loosely associated with any number of uh, sea monsters, though uh, not so much those of the serpentine form. One of these, however, a sea serpent, Olaus describes quite vividly in his 1555 book, History of the Northern People. Those that visit the coasts of Norway tell us of a very strange phenomenon, namely that there is in those seas a snake 200 feet long and 20 feet round, which lives in the hollows of the rocks and under the cliffs about Bergen and goes out in the moonlight nights to devour calves, sheep, and swine. Or else it goes to the sea and catches starfish, crabs, and so forth. It has a mane two feet long. It is covered with scales and has fiery eyes. It disturbs ships and raises itself up like a mast and sometimes snaps some of the men from the deck. Hans Egler, a Lutheran missionary to Greenland of uh, Danish and Norwegian descent, uh, did better than just repeating local lore when it came to describing sea monsters. He writes of witnessing himself the appearance of one on July 6, 1734. He describes the incident in his 1745 publication, A Description of Greenland. This monster was of so huge a size that coming out of the water, its head reached as high as the masthead. Its body was as bulky as the ship and three or four times as long. It had a long pointed snout and spouted like a whalefish. It had also great broad paws and the body seemed covered with shell work, its skin very rugged and uneven. The under part of its body was shaped like an enormous, huge serpent, and when it dived again underwater, 
it plunged backwards into the sea and so raised its tail aloft, which seemed a whole ship length distant from the bulkiest part of the body. Now, we'll look at another Danish-Norwegian author and Lutheran bishop who provided us the definitive source for our show's topic. His name was Erik Pontopichen, and the book, published in two volumes in 1752 and 53, is The Natural History of Norway. He uh, handles the subject with a fair amount of skepticism, given the period, while also conveying an engaging sense of wonder. Were it possible that the sea could be drained of its waters and emptied by some extraordinary accident, what incredible numbers, what infinite variety of uncommon and amazing sea monsters, entirely unknown, would exhibit themselves to our view. We'll look at his treatment of the kraken shortly, but uh, first we'll see what he has to say about sea serpents. The notion that such creatures are purely mythical, he dismisses early on, saying, I have hardly spoke with any intelligent person who was not able to give a pertinent answer and strong assurances of the existence of this fish, and some of our North traders that come here every year think it is a very strange question, as ridiculous as if the question were put to them whether they be such fish as eel or cod. Sea serpents, he tells us, secrete themselves in the depths of the ocean most of the year, only coming to the surface in July and August, their uh, mating season. And uh, speaking of mating... It is supposed they follow ships and boats at those times, which probably appear to them to be creatures of their own kind. Furthermore, it's only during calm weather that the creatures surface. The slightest gust of wind or unexpected wave will send them back to the depths. Their uh, natural timidity, however, does not preclude the uh, possibility of dramatic encounters, and we'll hear of one such incident from August of 1746, which is quoted from a sworn deposition. It begins with our narrator hearing a startled murmuring amid the crew, and he rushes to the helm where he's told a sea serpent has been sighted. In the meantime, this sea snake passed by us, and we were obliged to tack the vessel about in order to get nearer to it. The head of this snake, which it held more than two feet above the surface of the water, resembled that of a horse. It was of a grayish color, and the mouth was quite black and very large. It had black eyes and a long white mane that hung down from the neck to the surface of the water. Besides the head and neck, we saw seven or eight folds or coils of this snake, which were very thick, and as far as we could guess, there was about a fathom distance between each fold. A uh, fathom being six feet. As the snake swung faster than we could row, I took my gun that was ready charged and fired at it. On this, he immediately plunged under the water. We rowed to the place where it sank down, which in the calm might be easily observed, and lay upon our oars, thinking it would come up again to the surface. Where the snake had plunged down, the water appeared thick and red. Perhaps some of the shot did wound it, the distance being very little. 
Pontopachan offers some generalizations as to the form sea serpents might take. In particular, he says they differ usually from terrestrial snakes in having a uh, somewhat thicker body distinct from a tail, a body commonly as big as... Two hogsheads. Uh, that is uh, 60 inches. Hogshead barrels measure 30 inches across. The head in all the kinds has a high and broad forehead, but in some a pointed snout, though in others that is flat, like that of a cow or horse, with large nostrils and several stiff hairs standing out on each side like whiskers. It is supposed that the sea snakes have a very quick smell. As for the eyes, Pantopachin refers us to accounts from those fishing the uh, cod banks near the town of Olesen in western Norway, who have a lot to say about sea serpents, and... They add that the eyes of this creature are very large and of a blue color, and look like a couple of bright pewter plates. The whole animal is of a dark brown color, but it is speckled and variegated with light streaks or spots that shine like tortoise shell. It is of a darker hue about the eyes and mouth than elsewhere, and appears in that part a good deal like the horses, which we call moorsheads. In another passage, Pantopachin compares the creatures of the Norwegian Sea with those of the Greenland Sea, which uh, differ in regard to the skin, which is as smooth as glass, and not the least wrinkled, but about the neck, where there is a kind of mane, which looks like a parcel of seaweeds hanging down to the water. This leads to a discussion of sea serpents possibly shedding their skin, as do terrestrial snakes, and the surprising assertion that a few years there was to be seen at Kopervik, a cover for a table made of the skin of one of those snakes. Curious about such a novelty, Pantopachin makes uh, contact with the resident of the area, a uh, Torlak Torlakson, who, while he's not aware of such a thing, reports that in 1720, a serpent had been driven during a storm at sea into a narrow creek or channel where it lay for an entire week, leaving behind its skin, which... lay with one end underwater in the creek, and therefore... How long it was, nobody could tell. He said it did not seem fit to make a covering for the table, unless it had been properly dressed, or some other way prepared for that purpose. For it was not hard and compact like a skin, but rather of a soft and slimy consistence. Even the body itself is said to be of the same nature, as I am informed by those who, by accident, once caught a young one and laid it upon the deck of the ship. It died instantly, though nobody dared to go near it even then, till they were obliged to throw it overboard by the insupportable stink which was caused by the soft and viscid slime, to which it was at length dissolved. Pontopachin also provides reports of aggression by sea serpents, uh, shared with him by the fishermen of the north who say... What has frequently happened is that the sea snake has raised itself up and thrown itself across a boat and sometimes even across a vessel of some hundred tons of burden and by its weight has sunk it down to the bottom. And that... Sometimes they will raise up their frightful heads and snap a man out of the boat without hurting the rest. 
But I will not affirm this for truth, because it is not certain they are fish of prey. Fear of such things has resulted in a number of commonly observed safety measures. When a creature appears on the surface in folds or coils, fishermen take care never to row toward the spaces between these, for below these, the rest of the beast is concealed, and if they did, the snake would raise itself up and overset the boat. On the contrary, they row full against the highest part that is visible, which makes the snake immediately dive. If the creature is sighted at a distance and they are close enough to the shore, they can flee in that direction. But if out on the open sea, this is no option as... These creatures shoot through the water like an arrow out of a bow. And when flight is not an option, the best hope is to... Throw anything that comes to hand at them, so they be touched and generally plunge into the water or take another course. When heading to sea in the summer months, when such encounters are more likely, fishermen are likely to lay in a supply of castor oil, which, when thrown on the water, is said to repel the beasts. Off the coast of Denmark's Faroe Island, another substance is preferred, something called... Devil's dung which he explains is actually asafetida, a highly pungent dried gum from a plant of the celery family, something that in former centuries was used in European medicine and still is employed as a seasoning in Indian dishes. And uh, speaking of dung, Pontopachin remarks that from remote regions of Norway come reports of individuals poisoned upon coming in contact with the sea serpent excrement encountered in the summer months, floating on the water like a fat slime. This viscid matter is supposed by our fishermen to be vomited up by them, or else their sperm or some other humor. If a fisherman finds this matter near his net and inadvertently lets any of it touch his hand, it will occasion a painful swelling and inflammation, which has often proved so dangerous as to require an amputation of the limb. So let's now look at the kraken itself in its more modern incarnation, and by this I mean a conception of the creature arising in the 18th century. In our next episode, we'll dig a bit deeper into the very earliest medieval uses of the word and the related creatures which don't fit our modern notion of the kraken. Despite the changing application of the word, all writers over time have agreed on one thing, the kraken's size exceeds that of any creature of sea or land. The idea of the kraken as simply an oversized cephalopod, a squid or octopus or cuttlefish, only appears in the mid-1700s and had only really displaced other possible conceptions of the creature by the late 1800s. The name comes from an Old Norse word closest to a modern Norwegian and Swedish words for a defective animal or something twisted and it's related to our word crook or crooked or a number of German words beginning with that K-R, the crook sound. Um, and just as an aside, some believe that the etymology of the word Krampus is from a similar derivation, from an, an archaic word for bent or shriveled. In all these cases, what's pointed to is something monstrous, a creature that twists or turns or deviates from the good forms created by God or nature. 
You'll also find the idea of a monster as a beast combining dissimilar elements from other creatures, chimera style, like that provided by Hans Egele, whom we heard from earlier. In his 1745 Greenland book, he describes the kraken as having many heads and a number of claws. Pon Topichin, who we'll again be referring to a good deal, also gives us ambiguous suggestions of crab-like claws or appendages, saying that some refer not to the kraken, but the kraben or crab. This name seems indeed best to agree with the description of this creature, which is round, flat, and full of arms or branches. It's a bit difficult to know what's intended with all this, of course, because there wasn't yet any standardized zoological taxonomy. And the author switches between Norwegian terms and uh, Latin or Greek nomenclature, all of which uh, changes over time. Um, But for instance, Pontopichin describes the kraken as a polypus, occasionally shortened to polyp. This is uh, an outmoded word that once referred to squid, octopus, or other cephalopods, as well as what we still call polyps, uh, that is, uh, creatures like sea anemones. And then, to add to the confusion, he throws in starfish. This enormous sea animal, in all probability, may be reckoned of the polyp, or of the starfish kind, as shall hereafter be more fully proved. It seems that the parts which are seen rising at its pleasure, and are called arms, are properly tentacles, or feeling instruments, called horns as well as arms. With these, they move themselves, and likewise gather in their food. All of these creatures, well, perhaps not the crab, but things like octopi and anemones, do share similarities, having a central mouth surrounded by radiating arms, but Pantapachin in other places insists on a more exotic form of starfish, the medusa's head, which less resembles any of these, and instead has appendages that themselves split or subdivide. The creature, as he says, shoots its rays into branches, like those of trees. These medusa's heads are supposed by some seafaring people here to be the young of the sea kraken. Perhaps they are the smallest ovula. Meaning eggs, or perhaps here more, an immature form. While all of this may seem to obscure more than clarify our topic, the Kraken, I hope it at least conveys the sense of mystery that surrounded this creature. Now, uh, to the Kraken's behavior and its interaction with man, like other sea monsters, the creature tends to appear on hot summer days and will likely be encountered by fishermen, as its presence tends to draw in schools of fish, which serve as its food, and of course attracts fishermen, which also serve as its food. Uh, Pontopichin uh, provides related lore shared by his uh, fishermen informants. They believe that for some months the kraken or kraben is continually eating, and in other months he always voids his excrements. During this evacuation, the surface of the water is colored with the excrement and appears quite thick and turbid. This muddiness is said to be so very agreeable to the smell or taste of other fishes. He describes the case of two fishermen who fell into such a spot on the water, full of a thick slime, almost like a morass. 
They immediately strove to get out of this place, but they had not time to turn quick enough to save themselves from one of the Kraken's horns, which crushed the head of the boat so that it was with great difficulty they saved their lives on the wreck. Elsewhere, he describes the Kraken slowly rising beneath the boats. Fishermen, noting that the lines they drop fall to increasingly shallow depths, are wise to immediately then flee. Those foolish enough to remain will, in minutes, witness this enormous monster come up to the surface of the water, it back or upper part, which seems to be, in appearance, about an English mile and a half in circumference. Some say more, but I choose the least for greater certainty. Looks at first like a number of small islands, surrounded with something that floats and fluctuates like seaweeds. Here and there, a larger rising is observed like sandbanks on which various kinds of small fishes are seen continually leaping about till they roll off into the water from the sides of it. At last, several bright points or horns appear, which grow thicker and thicker the higher they rise above the surface of the water, and sometimes they stand up as high and as large as the masts of middle-sized vessels. It seems these are the creature's arms, and it is said if they were to lay hold of the largest man of war, they would pull it down to the bottom. Ships or boats that are not directly attacked, Bantopichin says, still run the risk of being sucked into the whirlpool created by the monster's descent back to the depths. While only the portion of the kraken rising above the surface is normally seen, the author recounts an incident from 1680 when an entire kraken was found among the rocks and cliffs in the nation's Nordland. It happened that its extended long arms or antennae, which this creature seems to use like the snail, in turning about, caught hold of some trees standing near the water, which might easily have been torn up by the roots, but beside this, as it was found afterward, he entangled himself in some openings or clefts in the rock, and therein stuck so fast and hung so unfortunately that he could not work himself out, but perished and putrefied on the spot. The carcass, which was a long while decaying, and filled a great part of that narrow channel, made it almost impassable by its intolerable stench. And to stay in your memory as the most thrilling sequence ever photographed in motion picture history, the terrifying battle with the giant squid. The battle with the giant squid enwrapping the Nautilus in Disney's 1954 adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was quite a technical achievement for its day. The uh, mechanized rubber puppet and the 34-person crew required to run it reportedly cost the studio $1 million. And even today it looks fairly good thanks to the uh, storm at sea staging that shrewdly distracts from any weaknesses. In the 1870 novel, however, Verne doesn't call the creature a giant squid, certainly not a kraken. In fact, it's an imaginatively oversized octopus, or actually a school of them that attacked the Nautilus. The likely inspiration for this scene was the widely reported 1861 encounter the French warship the Alecton had with a giant cephalopod near Tenerife. 
It's widely reported to have been a giant squid, but the French word for octopus was what was used in original reports. Between the 1870s and 1880s, a number of giant squid washed up on the shores of Newfoundland, and museums began competing to display the recovered creatures in preservative-filled tanks. And as the uh, public accepted that such things existed, illustrations of Verdun's giant octopus began to be conformed to look like squid. Likewise, legends of the Kraken were increasingly attributed to misunderstood sightings of giant squid rather than octopi. Stories similar to the Kraken legends did continue to appear, now identifying the creature as a giant squid. Uh, for example, the fanciful 1874 story from the Boston newspaper The Pilot, which describes sailors employing axes against the beast and men snatched from the deck by writhing tentacles. But other stories did come with hard evidence, and we'll be closing with these more uh, plausible accounts just to leave you uh, suitably unnerved about going near the water. The crew of the Alecton killed the creature they encountered, hoping to bring back a trophy. Uh, they managed only to return with a partial specimen as the animal's soft tissue was torn apart by ropes used to haul it aboard. More uh, durable evidence has been left behind in the form of hard uh, teeth or claw-like structures, uh, such as those embedded in the hull of the American destroyer, the USS Stein, in 1978. These were discovered when the ship returned to port after some mysterious incident that damaged the uh, Stein's sonar. These claws, I should probably mention, weren't stuck in the steel, but in a rubber covering which had been shredded, uh, something used to prevent uh, barnacle growth. Um, though the animal was unseen, scientists extrapolating from the size of the claws estimated the size of this beast to be around 100 feet. If you didn't know squid had claws, uh, here's a marine biologist employed by the U.S. Navy, uh, Forrest Wood, explaining a bit about these claws or teeth-like structures in a 1980 interview. These are typical suckers on an arm of the giant squid. And you'll see that in addition to the suction cup, each sucker is fitted with a ring of teeth so that when this sucker is applied to either prey or predator, these teeth are set and anchored into the flesh at the same time that the suction cup makes contact uh, with the flesh of the other animal. The entrance to the mouth the damage these teeth or claws can do it can be ugly, as we hear in another 1980 interview with zoologist Dr. John Cloudsy Thompson, describing scars left by a giant squid on the leg of his friend, R.E.G. Cox. Well, when I looked at his leg, he pulled up his trousers and I could see scars the size of a penny, which is about an inch and a quarter of the old penny, were, were dotted at intervals all the way up his leg. And these were white scars sunk quite deep into the flesh where the skin had been pulled off. Both of these clips, by the way, are from uh, the show Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World with a good episode on Beasts of the Deep. I'll link to that on the site. Anyway, as it turns out, Cox was a lieutenant during World War II. Uh, one of the troops aboard the liner, the SS Britannia, along with civilian passengers and war material, when it was uh, sunk by the German cruiser Thor in the Mid-Atlantic on March 25th, 1941. Cox was one of 12 men stranded on a lifeboat so overcrowded 
that the uh, occupants were forced to take turns in the water merely clinging to the boat, which itself was so overburdened that it floated a foot and a half underwater. Intense sun, thirst, starvation, and madness overwhelmed the occupants, with only three of the twelve surviving the five days it took for a Spanish steamer to eventually find them. And there were assaults by marine predators as scars on Cox's legs demonstrate. And he was one of the lucky ones. And one of the most horrifying things that happened while they were lying there, dying one by one from thirst, was one evening when they were attacked by giant squid. An enormous shape appeared beside the raft and a huge arm came over and snatched one of the men and tore him off the raft before anybody could do anything to save him. And presumably he was eaten. All rather horrible to be sure, but it is a story told in a pub. So should we trust it? Well, Cox's account has been cited in many books, including a couple by marine biologists. Others have called attention to a lack of contemporary or first-person verification. All news reports of the day do mention survivors being attacked by sharks, with one victim dragged off by the predators, as well as mentioning constant assaults by swarms of jellyfish and manta rays, those bat-like fish that can, can themselves be rather large, up to 30 feet wide. But no early account seems to mention a giant squid perhaps being devoured by a grotesque tentacled monster was just too horrible to share with the, the squeamish public. A uh, November 1st issue of the Illustrated London News doesn't subject readers to any hideous tales of man-eating squid, but it does mention one man having his legs bitten off by a shark, and then to add to the horror, a huge manta or devilfish seized his body, folded its great fins around the victim, and devoured him. Well, that's much better than any horrible squid, and it's hardly even a cause for nightmares. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or uh, even better to leave a review wherever you listen. It really does help the show. And I'd like to thank uh, Kala Dog and Arun77Nagar for leaving very kind reviews recently. As I've mentioned, uh, Patreon support is essential to keeping the show coming out regularly. And we normally try to bribe you to do your part by mentioning rewards offered on Patreon, my Krampus book, the mystery kits, the bonusicle candle, soundscapes, downloads, scripts, and bonus episodes. But we do need to up our game, and for this, we're bringing back the bonusicle shirts, which sold out very quickly last time. And so, given the high demand, we're going to make this an exclusive for our Patreon supporters. I should remind you that uh, those subscriptions begin at only $1 a month and can be canceled at any time. The orders can be placed through the Patreon site during April, and the shirts should be going out in May. I want to welcome our new subscribers, as I did in our last episode, with a little bit about each individual, just to give other listeners an idea of the company you're keeping while listening. 
Uh, of course, you can always join our Facebook group if you'd like to see some faces. So uh, we have Ben Van Sickle, uh, no relation, who is a former and ongoing student of history who finds himself somehow learning things I didn't know while listening. And uh, Schaefer Shockley, who is a lover of the spooky and macabre. And also a drone pilot in Texas, which means he is often driving long distances to various job sites. And Bone and Sickle makes for an awesome road trip companion. Ooh, making that a strange trip, I would imagine. We also have James Delisio as a new subscriber, but as I have no specific comments from him, he will remain a man of mystery. Thanks to these new subscribers and our ongoing subscribers. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Uh, Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>